0: Welcome to the Reach Podcast with your teacher, Pastor Taylor Gabber. Tonight we're going to talk about success. So in order to prepare, I was looking at some things that the world classically calls success. So I looked at, I found a top ten list for the most famous people that have ever lived. On that list, the number one was Jesus, so that's a good start. And it was Michael Jackson, number two, right under Jesus. That's pretty impressive, actually. <laughs> then it was Muhammad, Hitler, Einstein, Abraham Lincoln, Elvis Presley, Trump, Princess Diana, and Obama. I was surprised that Michael Jordan didn't make the list, in my opinion, at least more famous than Princess Diana. But, uh, so then I looked up power. I looked up power, and I found, I only found a top seven list for this. Um, It was Julius Caesar, most powerful people ever. Uh, Kishi Hang, I don't know who that is. Peter the Great, Gandhi, Napoleon, Teddy Roosevelt, and the President of the United States since 1945. So that's kind of cool. I guess you could say that takes like 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th. And then I looked at money, richest people to have ever lived. Um, I've never heard of number one M- M- Mansa Musa. Uh, it was an African king. Say it again. Mansa Musa. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. So they said they said that he. This is, was weird on the list. They said he had f- like 400 billion dollars, and then they every list had him ahead of Augustus Caesar, but all the lists agreed that Augustus Caesar had like 4.6 trillion dollars in today's money. Uh, I'm not sure why that was the way that was, but then uh, Emperor Shenzong, uh, Akbar the First, not to be confused with Admiral Akbar, uh, Joseph Stalin, Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller, Alan Rufus, uh, Bill Gates. I think the list was a little bit out of date because it didn't have Bezos or Musk on it. Uh, Genghis Khan, who was probably, if you if you just sold all the land he owned at like his peak, probably the richest person that ever lived, and then. I looked it up. They think Solomon, when he was the king of Israel, had about $2 trillion. So again, it is an, an insane amount of money. Um, and we, we all know that the richest person to ever lived was actually Scrooge McDuck. Um, when, listen, when, when I was a kid, I thought that if you'd asked me what success was, it was being able to high dive into your vault full of gold coins and swim through it. As an adult, I realized that if you high dive into a pool filled with gold coins, you just die, because that's metal, and you, it's not like they splash out of your way, and you'd like swim through them. That was highly unrealistic, but all of these people on any of these lists, they have, apart from Jesus, separate Jesus from the equation, apart from Jesus, everybody on these lists, they have two things about their success that are in common across the board. One, it was never enough, and two, it ended when they died. None of these people died and took their money, their fame, or their power with them. That's not how it works. So the question, as we look through that, is what is success? Like, what's an actual definition of success? What is a way to define success that matters past this life? Well, I'm going to tell you right up front that success is being in the presence of the Lord. That is the definition of success. It's the only thing that transcends death. If you're you're in the presence of the Lord here, you will be in the presence of the Lord after you die. And it's the only thing that's enough. It's the only thing in all of humanity that can actually fill us up that can actually satisfy us. There's not enough money to do it. There's not enough fame to do it. There's not enough power to do it. But the presence of the Lord, it can change your life. It's the only thing that satisfies and fills up. Tonight, we're going to be in Joshua. Everyone's favorite verse in Joshua is Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be terrified nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Uh, I, I think that some of the reason that we like Joshua 1.9 is the same reason that we like verses like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? It's like this kind of warm, fuzzy, comforting verse that really, um, it's, it's nebulous in a way, out of context. It's, it's easy for us to manipulate into just the Bible giving us this like pat on the back, Right, And I think the key to looking at 1-9 correctly is looking at Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will achieve success. See, the premise of the book of Joshua is that this is a a time period in Israel where they were obeying the Lord, where they were in His presence, walking with Him, doing what He told them to do. Not perfectly, not in every scenario, but largely that's what the book is about. It's a conquest. See, up to this point they've been wandering in the desert. See, we see in Numbers that they, they come up to the border of the Promised Land and They are afraid of the people in the land. They don't trust God. And then God says, okay, fine. Then for the generation that didn't believe that I would conquer the land, you're going to wander in the wilderness until you're all dead. And your children, the next generation, you will be allowed to go in and conquer the land. So when we pick up the book of Joshua, now we're there. Now we are at the generation that's going to move into the promised land. The first five chapters of Joshua are really the nation preparing Uh, to obey the Lord and conquer the land. They are being consecrated to the Lord. They are being purified. They are preparing in the first five chapters to go in. And they end, the first five chapters, crossing the Jordan with a miracle crossing just like when they left Egypt. Moses parted the, the waters and they walked across on dry land. And as we go into the book of Joshua, Joshua does the same thing and they cross the Jordan on dry land And they come across this in this miracle moment only to find themselves staring up at Jericho. And Jericho is a fortified city, a massive fortified city, a strong city. Israel's not a well-trained army. They don't have siege weapons. This city is a huge impenetrable obstacle. It is a massive enemy that they don't know how they're going to overcome. Here's the thing about obstacles. When you are obeying the Lord, when what you're doing is what God told you to do, then the obstacles in front of you are defying God. And God never loses. He never fails to overcome obstacles to His will. The first thing we're going to see about achieving success from, this, from Joshua chapter 6 is that we have to know the Word. And I want to, I want to say I mean this in three ways. I, first of all, I mean know and be familiar with God's Word, this book. Actually read it, actually lay it on your heart, memorize it, understand it. You can't live by what the Bible tells us to live by if you don't know it. If you're not reading it i've told you guys this before but this book is a manual on all of life it's how we operate it's how things work it has literally all of the answers if you not i understand that sometimes there's this immature reaction to that statement like well where's the verse that tells me what house to buy right that's not the way it works but if you walk with people who are in this word every day They will show you how this book guides us in everything we do. It has all of the answers. The second way that I mean know the word is to know it as an experience. Know it by living it out. Know it by doing it, right? Not just to have trivia and facts and memorization and head knowledge, but to actually have experienced what it means to live according to it. And the third way that we must know the word, in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus is the Logos. He is the word of God. You need to know personally Jesus Christ. You need to know the word. And I've used this analogy before, whether it's Tom Brady or LeBron James. You may know of them but you can't introduce me to them you can't call them up because you don't know them personally you can't know of Jesus you have to know him personally you have to have met him experienced him obeyed him that is how we're supposed to know the word look at Joshua chapter 6 starting in verse 1 now Jericho was tightly shut because the sons of because of the sons of Israel no one went out and no one came in But the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have handed Jericho over to you with its king and the valiant warriors. And you shall march around the city, all of the men of war, circling the city once. You shall do do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make the long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up everyone straight ahead. So first of all, they cross the Jordan and they come up in the city, Jericho and the city of Jericho is buttoned up tight. They're not coming out to meet them in battle. Why? The reputation of God has already preceded them. These people are already afraid. Uh, earlier in the story, they sent spies to Jericho, and the city was was on edge. And they, they spot the spies, and they begin pursuing them, and the spies are taken in by a prostitute named Rahab. And Rahab, even though she's a resident of the city, even though she is a native Canaanite, she has faith in the one true God. She believes that he will conquer, and she wants to be on his side. She puts her faith in him, not like the rest of the city, Who puts their faith in the walls of jericho she says i choose to believe that yahweh will overcome and she hides these spies so that the city is shut up it's doubled down in its sin it's taken refuge against the god that has come before them that is bringing the israelites out of the wilderness and the lord looks down and he says joshua see how i've given you the city right they haven't done anything nothing's been conquered and he says see right because in this moment god is inviting joshua to see with eyes of faith he's telling him look at the certainty that i will come through that i am going to overcome this city that their walls can't stop me he invites joshua to see his plan And then he immediately gives him the worst military plan ever. He's like, see how you're going to walk around the city a bunch of times and the walls are just going to come crumbling down? It makes no sense. It's not what any tactician would come up with. But I want you to see something. This isn't describing a battle plan at all. It's describing a ritual ceremony. It's describing a way that they are going to offer the city of Jericho up to the Lord as a sacrifice. They are not coming up with a practical plan. They're coming up with a faith-based plan. God doesn't give them a plan that would allow them to be self-sufficient. I want you to see that. It's like So many of the times when, when we have one-on-one conversations, you guys come and you say, well, I, I, you know, I don't know about this, and I don't know about that, and I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about that, and this doesn't really make sense for me. And, and, and I have to back you off the cliff to say, like, have you prayed about this? Have you read your Bible? Have you asked God what his plan is? Because very often we don't realize it, but we are being self-sufficient, We've decided we got to figure out how to do this in the most practical way possible. I mean, we're raised our entire lives to be self-reliant. I mean, your parents are, are should be teaching you to become a fully functioning adult so you can move out and not just like die on day one. But the point is, you have to learn how to live through eyes of faith, not through all of the practical means that the whole world is constantly praising. He gives them a plan that doesn't let them be self-sufficient. It gives him the glory, and it gives Jericho a chance to repent. It gives Jericho one more week to stop doubling down against God, to stop defying him. One more week to see the people walking around the city and say, you know, we could give in. We could stop this. They don't have to be defiant. Think about when Jesus comes. When Jesus comes, they were looking for a conqueror. They were looking for a practical answer. They wanted somebody who was going to come conquer Rome and free them. But what happened instead? They got the faith plan. They got a baby that grew up to be a carpenter that then went on to be murdered. None of that sounds like the practical answer to the problem of sin or domination or Rome or everything else they were looking for. None of it made sense. Why? Because it didn't allow them to be self-sufficient, and it gave God all the glory, and it's given us 2,000 years in counting for people to keep repenting. More people have had the opportunity since Jesus left to come to know him If he had come the first time as the conqueror, the jig is up. That's it. It's already over. In this moment, Jericho has a chance to repent. Even little details in this are important. Uh, They're commanded to use ram's horns. And if you read, like, in Leviticus and stuff, they talk about the, the silver horns, the nice horns. In this battle, they're commanded to use the crude horns. That would have been, like, embarrassing. Like, the people of Jericho are looking off the walls and like, what are they blowing down? That is the ugliest sound. They literally couldn't do better than ram's horns. Like, this is not an impressive display. It's humiliating. The thing is, they are being embarrassed, kind of like, I don't know, an all-powerful God that showed up as a baby, grew up to be a carpenter, and then was murdered. We call it the humiliation of Jesus. If you are going to be Christ-like, You are being called, by definition, to emulate Christ. Why do we always think that we're going to have it better than Jesus had it? See, the Israelites in this moment, they are being mocked. They get told, uh, walk around the city six times in six days, then walk around it seven times on the seventh day, then blow the ram's horns, and then everyone shout as loud as you can, the walls are going to come crumbling down, and then you're going to walk straight ahead and take the whole city. It's that simple. God's certain victories don't need our help. He's not dependent on you. The reality is he's giving you a chance to participate. And I want you to see there's no bystanders. Like, you don't get to opt out. You are either on God's team, participating in what he's doing, certain victory, or you are defying God, you're on the opposing team, certain death. Those are the only two options. God doesn't need us. He gives us the opportunity to participate, and it builds us up. We're the ones that benefit by getting to be a part of what God is doing. Look at verse 6. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and have seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns in front of the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city, and the armed men shall go on ahead of the Ark of the Lord. And it was so, that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. And the armed men went ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after excuse me, after the ark, while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed from your mouth, until the day I tell you, Shout. Then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now Joshua got up early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. Then the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. So the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did the same for six days. Joshua relays to the priests, the people, and the warriors what God has told him. But if you notice, he doesn't tell them the entire plan. He doesn't tell them the duration. He doesn't tell them every last detail about how it's going to go down. Um, He's leading them like Christ leads the church. God does not tell us every single detail about what he's doing in our life. He tells us what we need to do next. It's on us to trust him, to understand that he is the one with the perfect plan And we just have to do what he's guiding us to do. Jesus has the whole plan, and he doesn't always tell you. I was just reading uh, in the book of Habakkuk uh, at Falls Creek a couple weeks ago, and there's this verse that I, I had never seen before. And God is talking to Habakkuk, and he says, You wouldn't believe even if I told you. Oftentimes we're like, God, what what are you doing? What's coming next? What's the plan? I want to see further out than right this second. Has it ever occurred to you that if God told you what was coming, you wouldn't even grasp it? You wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't understand it. It would blow your mind in like maybe even a counterproductive way. God only tells you what you need to know next to be obedient and trust Him. It's called the faith walk for a reason. We participate by faith and we get to watch as amazing things happen. If you know God in a personal way, if you've experienced that He is good and faithful, then you can trust Him, you can obey Him. In verse 10, Joshua tells them three times to be quiet. And what do we know about threes in the Bible? Threes how they emphasize something. So he's like, shut up, shut up, shut up, right? He lays it out, don't make a noise, okay? Now I want you to see what's happening there. God didn't, I mean, we don't know, but it doesn't look from what we have like God said that. They are going out of their way to prepare to be as obedient as possible because they know they have to give a great shout, right? So he tells them, don't say anything. Now, there's something interesting going on in the writing here. Joshua chapter 6 is a, is a drawn-out narrative. It's slow. Right? See, a lot of times in the Old Testament, the way that they would write repetitively or the way that they would uh, go through details— um, kind of like a back-and-forth fashion. It was designed to make the narrative feel longer. I mean, you can feel it. When you read this, you're like, seven horns, seven rams, walking around seven times. I, good grief, what are we doing? It's because it's, it's designed to be a slow read. It's designed to feel as slow as it must have felt walking around that city for seven straight days and not getting to talk the whole time. They have a week's worth of meditating on what it means to trust in the Lord. You can't even talk to each other. They are literally just walking around the city feeling stupid and yet being obedient. And the narrative is designed to go so slowly that you, the reader, have a chance to meditate on that same lesson, on this obedience to detail, on this trusting in what the Lord is doing even when you can't see it. There's a lot of time to reflect. It's the same thing. You know, it, t- it says they go into the camp every night and they, and they go to sleep. We started with Joshua 1.8. You shall meditate on it day and night. The only thing they were, ta- they were thinking about for seven straight days and nights was what God had told them to do and how was it going to come about. You ever get anxious about what, go- what you don't know? Everybody, all the time. It wasn't different. It's not like that's a Gen Z problem. You don't think the Israelites had some anxiety doing what is like the most non-battle, battle plan of all time for seven straight days? They were anxious, but they were meditating on God's word. One of the words that they used for shout, the first one, It's the same word used for praise, like a shout to the Lord. I want you to see this. They are called to praise God before the battle is won. They are called to acknowledge God with praise. Look at this. God's people are uplifted by praise in the middle of a trial. God's enemies are terrified by it. This praise to the Lord before the battle that's going to uplift them right as they go in. It's going to petrify the enemies of the Lord. The people who know they've just been handed over by an almighty God to their enemies. We must know God's word before we can obey it. As a kid, your mom will tell you something. And what's the classic thing? Like right around your teenage years, it starts. You're like, I know, mom. Mom. Because it's like parents, like, they don't see the difference. I mean, we all know this, right? Like, your parents don't see the difference between you when you're, like, four and then you when you're 14, and then somehow when you're 24, it's, like, all the same, right? So they're telling you stuff, and I know, Mom, I know, I know, right? Well, part of the hang-up on your parents' end is in their heads they're going, if you knew, you would do it, right? And and they're, like, losing their minds because they feel like they can't get you to, to actually obey. Right. If you know the word of the Lord, you have to then obey the word of the Lord. See, here's the thing. Action is the testimony to faith. Action shows you that you have faith at all. Look at verse 15. Then on the seventh day, they got up early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same way seven times. Only on that day did they march around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, but the city shall be designated for destruction. It and everything that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things designated for destruction so that you do not covet them and take some of the designated things and turn the camp of Israel into something designated for destruction and bring disaster on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Holy means to be set apart. And he says that everything in the city, it's set apart, it's designated, or it's devoted to the Lord. Some of your translations might actually say devoted. See, here's the thing. Things that are devoted to the Lord's, things that are holy, they are refined by fire. And we often don't think of holy things like idols, right? It's holy in that we're supposed to set it apart to the Lord. We're supposed to refine it by fire. What's left of an idol after you light it on fire? Nothing. That's the point. It's something that you give up to the Lord. See, someday, all of creation will be refined by fire. And the only things that are going to be left are the things that are in Christ. So if you are not in Christ, you will not be left. And the parts of you that aren't honoring to God they will be burned away. That's the whole point. And in this moment, he's pointing to the city and he's saying this entire city is about to be purified. It's set apart, devoted, designated to the Lord. All of the evil in the city will perish. I want you to understand this city is evil. We didn't go through all the things that the Canaanites were guilty of, but this is not a people group that... First of all, that hasn't been given a chance to be saved. I told you that they were wandering around the wilderness before this point. That was an entire generation where they had a chance to repent, not to mention everything before that. The entire time that Israel was in slavery and wandering in the wilderness, the Canaanites have been given a chance. And we know from stories in Genesis that there were people who followed the living God in the land of Canaan. There were non-Israelites that knew who Yahweh was. These people are sacrificing babies. They are practicing, practicing witchcraft. They are practicing uh, homosexuality. I mean, they're doing, sound familiar, right? Like it, it's a cultural degradation of values away from God. And God has given them chance and chance and chance to repent and come back to know him. And at this point, he's sending in His people, and he said, we're going to purify the land. We're going to cleanse it. But look, Rahab, she's the only one that gets to survive. Why? Because she's put her faith in Yahweh. She's essentially repented of the idol of the city. She's repented. She's no longer taking refuge in the walls. She's taking refuge in the one true God. That's the whole point is, are you taking refuge in your sin? Are you taking refuge in the one true God? Verse 18, it says, don't touch anything in the city that's been designated for the Lord that's unclean. Why? Old Testament law, if you go look at it, it's largely about not touching unclean things. Why? Because when we touch unclean things, it makes us unclean. This is the cool part. Jesus comes way later, and everything unclean that he touches, he makes clean. That's why we need Jesus to touch us, because we are unclean, and we need him to come in and change that, something that only he can do. When you disobey God, you pollute yourself and the whole camp. Your sin doesn't just affect you. The consequences ripple. You see this. I mean, churches that condone sin, listen, we love sinners, because they need to be saved, but we hate sin. And, and churches that condone sin, that write off sin, you know what happens to them? They die. The presence of the Lord isn't with them. They don't grow. They don't, healthy things grow, and sins that, uh, churches that condone sin are camps that have been polluted. They're camps that have let people who are touching unclean things come in and make the entire church designated for destruction. This is why we are called to hold each other accountable because your sin is not just your problem. It's not just about you. Here's the question. Are you willing to love each other enough and love the body of believers enough to go confront each other about your sin and confront in a loving way? Confront in a way that says, I'm worried about you. I care about you because I see that you're touching something that's going to hurt you. That's how God confronts sin. He asks people to come to repentance. The Christian life is messy. Stop running from it. When somebody comes and, and confronts you about your sin, are you going to double down behind the walls of Jericho and take refuge in your idol? Or are you going to repent and be saved, be allowed into the camp? Because that's what happens to Rahab. All the gold, silver, and iron, and bronze, it's its all dedicated to the Lord. The people get nothing out of this. Is that right? This is the first fruits of their conquest. You—you you don't, don't just look at chapter 6. This is the first battle. How is God going to trust them with the whole land if they can't be obedient on this first city? They aren't going to get anything out of this battle except... The only thing that makes them successful, which is the presence of the Lord. Look at verse 20. So the people shouted, and the priest blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, everyone straight ahead, and they took the city. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword the whole buildup, the slow narrative, it comes to this pinnacle point that happens really quickly. The author races through the climax. Why? He's showing the effortlessness that it took God to accomplish this. All that buildup, all the anxiety and the worry and the meditating on it, and in an instant, God finishes it. It's over. The Bible says that faith moves mountains. Here's the reality. When you have eyes of faith, you're staring at the things God is already doing. You get to see mountains move and it will blow your mind. If you know and obey the word, you will be with the word. There are some faith traditions out there that tell you if you have enough faith, God will give you whatever you want. If you just believe hard enough, you can have all the stuff no but if you believe in the right thing the name of jesus you will get him you will get him and his presence and that is the point look at verse 22 and joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land go into the prostitute's house and bring the woman and all that she has out of there just as you have sworn to her so the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab her father her mother her brothers and all she had they also brought brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel then they burned the city with fire and all that was in it only the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord however Rahab the prostitute and her uh, father's household and all she had Joshua spared and she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. God delivers Rahab. She has faith that God will deliver her, and he does deliver her. Literally the rest of the Bible, the whole Bible, she's referred to as the prostitute. right? And that, that, that's like what's going on there. God is highlighting his mercy. Here's the thing. Every single one of you has a label that could be attached to your name. And most of you let that label cripple you from being used in the way that God wants to use you. First of all, God doesn't care who you've been, He wants you. And secondly, Rahab, she understood that she was going to be used by God regardless of the title that the world had given her. She had faith. In God who had mercy on her. I've told you guys this before, but I it, it's amazing that we as a community believe this lie of how bad we are. Like I have some of you guys come and see me in my office, and it's like, at 19 years old, you've bought this lie that you're like the worst person on the planet. And God, how could God possibly use you? And I mean, some of you are 19, some of you are 25, and you, and you believe the same lie. And I, I said this last time I was here, you haven't had time to become the worst person on the planet. Okay? It, it, God is not shocked by what you've done. He wants to redeem those things and use them for his glory. Think about this. God is glorified because a prostitute... Was what he used to make his plan perfect. God wants to use you. He wants to let you participate. He cares and loves you. He doesn't care about the title that could be attached to your name by the world. Look at verse 26. Then Joshua made them take an oath at the time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he will lay its foundation, and with the loss of his youngest son, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. First of all, what's with this curse, right? Like, that's a weird kind of insert there. Jericho is a pagan city, and not only that, but it's the pride of the Canaanite defiance to God. It was the city that was supposed to be impenetrable, that God couldn't overcome. It was on their southern border. They were going to stop the Israelites right here because the Israelites couldn't invade the rest of the land if they couldn't get past Jericho. This city, in and of itself, it it was the idol of itself. It worshipped its own strength and defense. Here's the thing about idols. Oftentimes we know what our idols are and God tells us to get rid of them. And what we do is we go, well, I, I just won't do it anymore. And we put it in a closet and we're like, there, it's gone, right? That's not how it works. It never stays in the closet. It. Ne- I don't care if you go get it out consciously. The Sin has its own will, right? That's That thing is coming out. The only way that you... Get rid of an idol is you eviscerate it you incinerate it you burn it all the way down that's what they're doing with the city of jericho and they don't make a plan b they don't go well we'll get rid of it for now six months from now we'll see no they say cursed is whoever builds this idol back up this thing is gone and we know In 1 Kings 16, somebody does build it back up and exactly what they said was going to happen happens. That person sacrifices two of their children to build the city of Jericho back up. God is serious about idols. And then verse 27 is the key. Success is not defeating Jericho. Success is being with God. Why does Joshua's fame increase? Because God is showing off. This is somebody who follows the Lord, so God's going to elevate him and say, look at my servant. Look at, look at, look at how, how well he's doing. Let me ask you this. What if your success glorified God? You think you'd have a little bit more of it? Like, why, don't, why doesn't God give us more? I, I can't speak for everyone in the room, but I know for me that God doesn't give me a lot of the things I want because I wouldn't use it for him. I wouldn't glorify him. It would be for me. I began uh, some time ago to pray that God would never give me one more dollar than I could honor him with. That's a weird prayer because honestly, I wish God would give me a lot of money. That'd be cool, right? Like no one's ever like balked at more money. But I realized that if that is going to take me to a place where I don't love the Lord, Lord, burn my house down first. But don't let me walk away from you. And you know what? The day that me having more money will glorify the Lord, I better look out because it's coming. If you want success, first of all, you have to change your mindset on what success is. It is the presence of the Lord. And secondly, if your success is something that honors God and points people back to Him, you won't be able to stop it. God lifts up the people that point to His name. Why? Because there are people who need to be saved. There are people who need to look at you and say, what do you have? And if you're not willing to go, I've got Jesus Christ, the Savior, then God's not going to point those people at you. It's not the way it works. The Israelites knew and obeyed God's word at Jericho, and God was with them. The, literally the next story, chapter 7, is that someone in the camp disobeys God, and a bunch of people get killed for it. Right there, back to back for a reason. This is what it looks like to walk with the Lord, to know him, to obey him, and this is what it looks like to not. And the Bible is full of those examples, even back-to-back like that. Listen, you're not Joshua or Jesus. You're called to put your faith in Jesus. You're called to follow the plan that he has been given, the, the, the plan that he has made for us to be a part of. The Bible is pretty clear that if we're not about God's business, we've missed the point entirely. And and I'll I'll tell you that you can accomplish so much in this world and have nothing. If it's not things that are eternal, things that matter to the Lord. I named this this message, and then you will achieve success. Success. I want you guys to look at Joshua 1.8 and see that all success comes after you have placed this book on your heart day and night and you obey everything you see in it. You're not earning it. It's not legalism. It's about falling in love with this. Falling in love with the God who wrote this to you. And then you will achieve success when you are with the Lord. Hey guys, this is Matt O'Mealy, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of REACH Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that is defined by real transformation and the sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. REACH Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.